All right, tonight uh, we're going to continue this series on battle lines, creation and the three rebellions. And tonight it's the temple of creation, part two, the temple of creation. I want to refer to the main sources on this. One is a series of papers, of which I've read two, entitled The Temple of Creation, and most of what I'm using comes out of part one. This is from Trevor Lawrence. He's the executive director of the Cataclesia Institute, and his PhD is in theological ethics from the University of Exeter. And these articles are excellent, but you'll get a taste of that uh, tonight. And I also referred to this in the previous sharing, Abraham's Starlike Seed, which was the master's thesis from David Burnett, and I'll be quoting from that uh, a little bit later in the sharing. Okay? So put those things up front. All the good stuff these gentlemen showed me, all the trip-ups are mine. Okay? All right. It's a little highbrow tonight. Well, uh, yes and no. This is exciting stuff. Never will come down for me and then you'll be able to understand it. Thank you so much. really appreciate that. I'm really excited about this. This is all stuff. Let me say this up front. This is, none of this is anything you're unfamiliar with. But perhaps you had to, haven't seen it all in one place before. And so I want to share it so you can think through these scenarios because what we're building to is the messaging, the theological messaging that God has placed for us inside of Genesis so that we have some bearings on the epic that we've been invited to live in. Okay? So I want to talk about the tabernacle. The tabernacle. Remember, David had, you know, he's, he's sitting around and he says, I'm living in a house of cedar. You know, God's ark stuck over there in a tent. I think I'll build him a house. And Nathan the prophet said, you go and do that, because God says yes to anything you want to do, basically is my paraphrase of it. And they get done with that conversation. And God pulls the prophets here in 2 Samuel 7, verse 5. He says, Go tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So this is the motif of God dwelling in a tent sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. But God's dwelling place obviously is a bit larger than that. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Now do you start to see this tabernacle motif a bit larger than just a tent in the wilderness? The heavens. The heavens. Isaiah 40, verse 21 do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And so now we begin to get a taste of this description of the creation that we live in 
as God's sanctuary. He stretched out or spread the heavens like a tent to dwell in. Exodus chapter 24, God invites Moses, Aaron, and his sons, and the 70 elders of Israel to come up onto the mountain of God and dine with him. And they come up on the mountain and they see God and they see what is under his feet as of sapphire stone, which uh, we call lapis lazuli, blue stone flecked with gold is God's pavement, you know, the sky. (laughs) And it says they ate in the presence of God and nothing happened to them. (laughs) You should read the scene, it's pretty neat. But in verse 12 of Exodus 24, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it, Six days. And on the seventh day, he called the Lord, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Verse 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, devouring fire on the top of of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days. And 40 nights. So the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. Covering yourself with light as with a garment. Stretching out the heavens like a tent. Now I know we're used to, when you think creation, you know, the creation account in the Bible. And we, hey, Genesis 1. But Genesis 1 is only one of the creation accounts in the Bible. There are several creation accounts in the Bible, Psalm 104 being one of them. So I want to revisit, and I know we've talked about this you know, in the past month or so, this mountain of God motif in Scripture. So we just read that Moses went up into the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, also referred to as Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B. You can see that in... Exodus 3, verse 1. So, this is the mountain of God, Sinai, where the glory of God, the glory of the Lord dwells. It's called the mountain of God in those sections. Exodus 20, 24, verses 13 and 16. And we're familiar with Mount Zion. Right? Mount Zion, Jerusalem, you know, on earth. Uh, you can see this in Isaiah 2, 3 and Micah 4, 2. It's, it's called the mountain of the Lord. Now, some people here have been to Jerusalem. Is it is it like is this mountain huge? No, no. Is it, you know, what does it look like? Like a little, a little hill. Like a little hill. Yeah. It's not about geography, folks. It's about importance. It's about who dwells there. Yeah. Mount Zion, the mountain of the Lord. 
Another uh, phrase this goes by is cosmic geography, this overlap of the spirit realm and the physical world that we live in. We're also familiar with heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, Hebrews 12, verses 22 through 24, and Revelation 21, 10. It's called Mount Zion, the city of the living God, this heavenly Jerusalem. Let's look at Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You have come to heavenly Jerusalem, where there are countless angels gathered for a feast, a festal gathering. This is the same picture as coming to Jerusalem in the days of Israel occupying the land and them celebrating tabernacles or celebrating unleavened bread or celebrating these different feasts, right? And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. My tongue's still tripping on reading ESV and the King James running. <laughs> All right, so you see this now, heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. This is, this is our, where our citizenship is, where the blood of Jesus speaks forgiveness versus the blood of Abel calling out the murderer, his brother, right? Revelation 21, verse 10. This is John. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So you've caught this, this God dwells on a high mountain motif in Scripture. This is a literary motif in Scripture. Okay? And if you're a reader, you're aware of literary motifs. The Bible is an executed piece of divine human literature that uses literary devices and literary motifs that the people to whom the revelation first came to were very much familiar with and in tune with. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Right? It's like Jesus didn't, the Word of God didn't become incarnate and then grow up in Nazareth speaking Japanese. (laughs) Wouldn't make sense. Wouldn't make sense, would it? Right? So we have looked at Mount Sinai. We've looked at earthly Mount Zion. We've looked at heavenly Mount Zion. Now let's look at this other mountain of God, Eden, the holy mountain of God. Ezekiel 28, verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God, Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. So here we have Eden, the holy mountain of God. And until recently, I never thought of Eden as a mountain of God. You know? I always considered it this, this almost uh, nice lush, nice 
you know, flat garden. Yeah. Hey, what comes out of Eden to water the earth? Four rivers. Oh, what oh, direction oh. do rivers flow? Down. Downhill. So, so here's a fun thing for you. Just follow the river of life. Follow the rivers, and you'll find that the river motif repeat itself as well. It's in Eden, and it's in Revelation, and it's in Isaiah. This river of God coming out of His mountain, coming out of His threshold. Water coming from his dwelling place. Wait a minute. What comes out of your belly when you believe on the Lord God and are saved? Rivers of living water. Okay? So, amen. So, we, so we're looking at truths on a cosmic scale to help us capture something that's almost unimaginable. Because we're talking about the heavens and the earth and all of creation, just so you get a grip and a glimpse of what it is that God did in you when He cleansed your heart with the blood of Jesus Christ, when you through faith said, yes, I believe. And He came and took up residence in you. What we are living in actuality trumps all of this. And all of this is Pretty amazing. It's cosmic. <laughs> it's, have you looked up there in the night sky to see what it's like? <coughs> oh my goodness. Now, if you're curious about these stones of fire, um, I actually printed two of these by mistake, but this is the transcript from a uh, Naked Bible podcast that Heiser did on the stones of fire. So if you want this copy, it's up here. It's up for the taking. Hate to waste the paper. So, I want to look at creation and then the tabernacle plan. Remember, God told Moses, see you make it according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mount. And we read in Exodus 24, God called Moses up into the mountain. He comes into the cloud. And in this interface where, God, where Moses is in God's presence, God is communicating to him the pattern of the tabernacle over a course uh, or a section of Scripture. Well, the first alignment we see is that in the creation account of Genesis 1-1 through 2-3, there are seven days of creation. Right? Yeah. And the first day, and the second day, and on the seventh day, right? Seven days. The seventh day he rested, right? And the seventh day he rested. Those are the seven days. The, the, the week. That's why we call it the week of creation. In giving the plans for the tabernacle, uh, the plans for the tabernacle are in Exodus 25.1 through 31.18. That's the section where Moses is on the mountain and God is giving him the pattern. And in that section of Scripture, we have this phrase, the Lord said to Moses, and the phrase shows up seven times. Seven days of creation. God brings Moses up into the mountain of God to give him the pattern of the tabernacle. See, you make it according to the pattern. Hebrews tells us it's because it's a pattern of what is in heaven. Hey, where are you? And where else? 
Not See, it's the, it's the already but not yet because our citizenship is in heaven. We have come. Mm-hmm. We have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come. Already but not yet. This is the tensor of life that we live. I want to read this uh, quote um, from Trevor Lawrence out of the, out of the paper, the, the Temple of Creation. And I, I just think it's a great paragraph. He says, Genesis 1-3 through never explicitly states the world is a temple, but with an array of evocative associations between creation and God's subsequent dwellings in the tabernacle and temple, these chapters proclaim that truth in a manner more vivid and immersive than any straightforward declaration ever could. So if you've ever noticed the architectural terms that God uses for the creation, the foundations of the earth were shaken. The pillars of the earth were shaken. There's a lot of architectural motif used in reference to the ancient Near Eastern cosmology that's inside of the Old Testament. Okay? It's not by accident. It's not by happenstance. And it's not just communicating to the culture as we talked to talked about last time. It's also God saying, I made it, this is where I live. So, I want to look at the days of creation and the speeches that God gave to Moses because there are some telling correlations between the speeches that God gave Moses with regard to building the temple and the days of creation. For instance, you have in Genesis, day one, day one, God said, let there be light. And that's in Genesis 1, verses 3 through 5. Well, within the first speech are the instructions for the building of the golden lampstand, Exodus 25, 31 through 40. So the golden lampstand stands in the holy place in front of a veil that's woven with the colors of the sky. White, scarlet, purple, and blue with gold thread through it. And the light shines, right? Day one, God says, let there be light. In the first speech, the instructions for the building of the golden lampstand. The seven-branched golden lampstand. In day three which is Genesis 1, verses 9 through 10, is the gathering of the seas and dry land appears. That's day 3. This is... uh, In the third speech, inside the third speech are the instructions for the building of the brazen or the bronze basin. That's Exodus 30, verses 17 through 21. In the temple, when they build the temple... This thing is made very large. It holds 2,000 baths of water, which I forget how many gallons that is, like 6,000 gallons or something. I can't remember. It's a large bout of water. But in the temple, that thing's called the sea. But the instructions for that are in the third speech. And it correlates to the third day of creation. Bigger than the hot tub, but smaller than the swimming pool. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a 15 person hot tub. Yeah, it's large. Uh, day six, let us make man in our own image. 
Genesis 1, uh, verses 26-27. And then we get further information as to how this transpired. Genesis 2-7, and God breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And we understand this is that by, by agency, by God's direct agency, man was given life, God's Spirit breathing into man. Well, in the sixth speech, which is uh, chapter 31, verses 1-11 through 11 in Exodus, it's all about the Spirit-filled craftsmen who are going to build this tabernacle. God gives Adam life, places him in the garden to keep and tend it. And then in Exodus 31, in the sixth speech, God says He's filled certain craftsmen with, with His Spirit. Okay? Oh, what happened on day 7? On day 7, God finished His work and rested. That's Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. The seventh speech... Genesis 31, 12 through 18. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Does, does, this, does this look happenstance to you? <laughs> so, I have to confess that for, for a long, long, long time, like, you know, say maybe from, from age 14 to possibly 30. When I read Genesis, I just read through it, and there were certain sections that were, you know, oh, this is kind of neat to read. And, and then there are the slog-throughs, right? The genealogies and the, the different things in Genesis. And, and I was aware of certain structures in other books. I was aware of certain literary structures inside the book of Acts, certain literary structures inside of the epistles. But I, I never understood any kind of literary structure in Genesis. It was just a book. I didn't... I didn't have an outline for it, never studied an outline for it, until I read Alan P. Ross's Creation and Blessing, and that's the first notice I got about the organization of Genesis into the ten generations, the Toledot sections of Genesis. Well, <laughs> Genesis structure, a little bit deeper than that. So, I'm going to read to you from David Burnett's paper, and... Bear with me because you just, I just want you to follow the footnotes. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I, could, I could print you a copy of this so you don't have to write real fast, but just give it a listen. So I'm going to read the main body of it, and then I'm going to go back to the footnote of it, okay? He says, The narrative setting of Genesis begins with Yahweh's establishment of the cosmic order in creation. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, portrayed as the construction of a great temple with an arithmetical literary structure based on the numbers 7, 10, and 3. Now, if you've ever read, uh, this is me going, going off the paper, if you've ever read about the building of the tabernacle and the temple, you know you can get lost in some numbers, mm -hmm. right? All the dimensionings. Sure. Uh, 10 cubits high, 20 cubits deep, all that kind of stuff, right? So, it's portrayed as the construction of a great temple with an arithmetical literary structure based on the numbers 7, 10, and 3. There were 10 acts of divine fiat in the seven days of creation, and the three-tiered cosmos were established. 
There were three domains established in the cosmic temple on the first three days, while their corresponding hosts were created in the following three days. The heavens above, inhabited by the luminaries, the seas below, inhabited by the sea monsters. I'm sure you're not used to hearing sea monsters with regard to Genesis 1.21, but it's not a bad translation. And at its center and third, the greatest of the three, the earth, the domain of man, the image of God. Once the three-tiered cosmic temple called the heavens and the earth had been erected and filled with their respective hosts, Yahweh could then rest on the seventh day, which corresponds to residing as king over the entirety of his domain. Mm. Are you with me? Okay, this is the narrative. Now, we're going to get into some nuts and bolts, but I've got to take a drink of water and you've got to get ready for this, all right? The nuts and bolts are interesting. So, did, was, that the, was that the main part of it? Okay, so now you're going to read us the footnote. That was the body. Now, with regard to the arithmetical literary structure based on the numbers 7, 10, and 3, he gives the following footnote. In Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, the first verse has seven words. The second verse has 14 words, twice seven. This obviously is in Hebrew, right? The second verse has 14 words, twice seven. After the first verse, the section is divided into seven days. The three nouns in the first verse, making up the basic concepts of the section, God, heavens, and earth, are repeated in the sections in multiples of seven. God occurs 35 times. Earth occurs 21 times. Heavens occurs 21 times. There are 10 acts of divine fiat, and God said. Clearly divided into two groups. Seven divine fiats enjoining the creation of creatures. Let there be light, let there be a firmament, etc., and three pronouncements that emphasize God's concern for man's welfare, three being the number of emphasis. The terms light and day are found seven times on the first day, and there are seven references to light on the fourth day. Water is mentioned seven times on day two and three. The word living occurs seven times on the fifth and sixth day. The expression it was good appears seven times, the seventh time very good, the seventh day is made up of three sentences, each of which consists of seven words and contains in the middle of the expression, the seventh day. If you've ever written anything, you know that takes some work and help. Oh my goodness, it's beautiful. That was the first footnote. With regard to the three-tiered cosmos being established, and in reference to what I just read you about the structure of 3, 7, and 10. As mentioned above, said and day. Said happens 10 times. The and God said. So his acts of divine fiat and God said are in chapter 1, verses 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 20, 24, 26, 29, 28, and 29. And then the seven days. He says, it is important to note here that 10 times 7 equals 70 appears to be the pattern of completeness of the cosmic order recapitulated within the narrative structure of Genesis, especially important for the Abrahamic narrative as will be demonstrated further below. There are 10 generations. Those are the Toledot I mentioned. So these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of 
Adam. These are the generations of Shem. These are dividing structures inside of Genesis. There are ten of them. Seven of which contain narratives, while three are genealogies only, which are interlaced between the three patriarchal generations. So, that just gives you some idea of, of the intensity of structuring that is going on inside of Genesis as God is letting us know about His habitation and His creatures and His realms and His domain and His authority. Because what we're talking about are three battle, the battle lines, the three zones. So this number 70, I, and I, I'm going to come back to this, that, that 7 times 10, that structure appears to be the pattern of completeness of the cosmic order recapitulated within the narrative. This is important. It's important because in the table of nations, Genesis 10, there are 70 nations mentioned. And we know that table of nations is a result of what happened in Genesis 11, which is the Tower of Babel event. The Tower of Babel event is what Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 are referencing, and what Psalm 82 is mentioning, I think that's Psalm 82, 1 through 6, with regard to God disinheriting the nations and giving them over to the Elohim, to the gods. So 70 represents the, the whole sum. So that when God calls Moses up onto the mountain of God, 70 elders of the children of Israel go up to the mountain with him and stand in divine counsel in the manifest presence of God in the hall of heaven. With this pa- so this, this motif plays over and over and over again. Okay? That blessed me. I hope it blessed you. Alright? So I will finish this up with a little bit of application. <laughs> the tabernacle, the temple, and the body of Christ. So, just some touchstones. Remember, pattern is prophecy in Scripture. Pattern is prophecy. How God does things. He's saying something. He wants you to catch it. Okay? So, the tabernacle. In Exodus 40, verse 21, the ark is brought into the tabernacle. And then verse 33 says, So Moses finished the work. And in Exodus 40, verse 34, the glory filled the tabernacle. Now, in the temple, the narrative order is a little bit different, but the truths are the same. In 1 Kings 7, verse 51, it says, All the work was finished. And second, in 1 Kings 8, 6 through 8, the ark is brought in to the Holy of Holies. And then in verse 11, the glory filled the house. You got the pattern? Yeah. What was that like, the glory, when it, the glory of God filled the house? Uh, let's read temple. it. Let's read that. 1 Kings. We know what it was like on Sinai, like a devouring fire. Um, but in First Kings eight, I remember the priests couldn't. couldn't they do they their couldn't minister. They couldn't do their work. They had to fall down and. Yeah, the um, 
one of the understandings of kabod is weight. Glory is weight. Yeah. There's a weight to God's glory. First uh, Kings eight and and verse ten. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So you get the cloud and the glory. Again, that's another motif of the pillar of cloud and the column of fire that, re- that appears and appears and appears and appears. So you've got the tabernacle. you got the temple. Okay? You got that? Let's talk about the body of Christ. John 19.30 It is finished. And He gave up the ghost. Jesus accomplished it all. All the work. He prayed prophetically in John 17. I have done, I have finished all the work you've assigned to me. Now glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. That was his prophetic prayer. He wanted to go back to where he was. And so he goes through the cross, and when it's all done, every mistake you've ever made, every sin you've ever done, every bad thing that you've ever, every hurtful thing you've ever done to anybody else, every hurtful thing you did to yourself, every defiling you've ever done of the image of God that He made you to be, when every ounce of blood was dripped, He said, it is finished. You cannot add to Christ's work. You can only live in it. You You can only live in it. You can only live because of it. You can't improve upon it. You can just reflect it. It is finished. It's finished. And then the true ark went into heaven. Well, they behold, a cloud took him out of their sight, basically. He ascended in a cloud, received him. A cloud received him into heaven. Okay? By now, God shouldn't have to tell you, oh, hello, my Shekinah cloud showed up and took my son home. <laughs> he wants you to read his Bible, right? It is finished. He's resurrected. He's ascended in a cloud. He is the living Word. The Word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's finished. He ascended, and then the glorified One sent the glory. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. A mighty rushing wind filled the house, and cloven tongues like as a fire sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In John 7, when Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come to Me. This He spake of the Spirit, which hadn't been given yet because He had not been glorified yet. Out of their belly shall flow rivers of living water. If you read Ezekiel 48, and the river of God that comes out of the threshold of the temple and turns salt water fresh and heals the earth. You read Revelation 21 and the, the river, the, the river of God going through the city and the trees of life. <sighs> Do these things exist? Yes. yes. I imagine so, but you exist more. It's all about what Christ did because you 
are the temple of the living God. You are the habitation of God. You are sacred space God is inhabiting so that the world can see what a loving Creator put them here that they might live with Him forever through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to continue His plan. Amen. Amen. Amen.